Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of The Alabama Woodworker, <laughs> and I'm joined by my friends Sean Walker of Simple Co. Say hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Say hi, Guy. Hi, Guy. There you hi, go. Hi, Hui. <laughs> like guy tells us what to say. Yeah, it's a little bit too much control there. I like having really, you know, good direction here, right? I think yeah. we could figure out how to handle that part of the uh, uh, podcast, yeah. <laughs> believe it or not. Okay. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And how we is a control freak. I'm a control freak. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank our newest patrons, Colin Hayes and Jeff Richards at Old Man Pottering. If you'd like to show your support, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshop life if you'd like to show your support. And please stick around towards the end of the show. We're going to briefly talk about what each of us have going on in our shops. So let's get right into it. Guy, you've got the first question. Oh, all right. Well, this is from Paul. Paul Saul. Paul says, hey, guys, first off, I have to say glad to have some fellow metalheads in the woodworking community. <laughs> Rock on, Paul. I want to follow up on something good old guy said a while back on how he makes his own Danish oil. Poly, BLO, boiled linseed oil, and naphtha. The naphtha threw me for a loop, seeing as how every YouTube video says to use mineral spirits. Well, I gave it a side-by-side -side test, and yep, I like the naphtha better. Good call. Well, I'm glad you like that, Paul. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what other chemical tricks do you guys have up your sleeves? Anything out of the ordinary novice woodworkers may not know? I pretty much have one of each and only a little use from each. So I'm looking for inspiration. And lastly, we all hear the combustible materials need to be stored in a metal cabinet. Why? <laughs> I'd have to cram it in next to all my other wooden shop cabinets anyways. Keep up the great work, Paul. So I'm going to answer the second question first about the combustible chemicals need to be started in metal cabinets and why. Because they're combustible. Yeah, I think that covers it. And that that's really has to do with OSHA regulations in a commercial shop. Yeah. Um, in your home shop, if you if you can put your combustibles in a metal cabinet, great. If not, I think you're going to be okay. But it mostly has to do with OSHA rules in a commercial shop. There's other question about what chemical tricks do you guys have up your sleeve? I'm going to give one, and then you guys can give. I'm, I'm going to give gonna... zero because I don't have any. You don't have anything? Really? You don't have anything? No. Nothing? No. Sure don't. I may, when you say something, I may try to go ahead. Okay. We'll so the, my, my chemical trick is something I've talked about before and it has to do with darkening cherry and that's oh. to use potassium dichromate mm -hmm. or sometimes called potash. Mm -hmm. It's a very dangerous chemical. It's very <laughs> carcinogenic and it's not widely used. However, in a hobbyist situation where you may use it once every couple years, I think you'll be fine. You always got to make sure with something like that, you're always adding the chemical to the water and not 
the water to the chemical. Anyway, so I keep a, a jar of that in my my finishing cabinet that's full strength, which is like two teaspoons to 16 ounces. And if you put it on cherry, what it does, it reacts with the, uh, the, the tannins that are in the, the, the cherry and it darkens it. It makes it look like it was like it's been sitting around in the sunshine for 20 years. It's pretty cool stuff. Hmm. But I tend to take that full strength and I water it down quite a bit. So I may take like a, another pint of water and just put like, you know, a couple ounces of the full strength in there, test it out to see how it is. And it works really well. I, 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 I really recommend that I, I, I use that. And then I put garnet shellac over the top yeah. and that gives cherry. It gives new cherry. It makes it look like it's 20, 30 years old. And it still has that nice reddish brown color. So explain how you actually use it though. How do I actually was well, after I dissolve it in the water, I take it and I just wipe it on. Mm. Pretty much. So you leave it on, you don't wipe it up, you don't do any cleaning or with water to wipe anything off. It dries really quick because quick because the, the water flashes off pretty quick. Ah. You put it on there. You gotta let you have to let it dry for a good maybe hour or two before you start to realize the full color of it. Because if you put it on, especially when you you know you weaken it like I do in solution, um, it doesn't look like it did anything. Yeah. But cool. and it's like, oh, it didn't do anything. Maybe I need to add some more. So I add more and it's like all of a sudden you have this piece and it's like black. So um, give it an hour or so to, uh, that's why I usually make a test board. Mm-hmm. If I'm no, if I know I'm going to finish this, let's say on a Saturday, Monday night, I may start making test boards to see what it looks like in different situations. But uh, I just apply it and I let it dry. Um, I will because it does have water in it. You do have to sand it back, and like I said, it is a carcinogen. So make sure you wear a particulate mask when you do it. And if you have an air scrubber, like one of the, the, the air filters that, you know, are on the ceiling of your shop, use that. Um, so, but there you have it. And I'm going to, I'm going to let Sean stew about it a little bit more. Hui, do you have anything? So at one point I was thinking about fuming some white oak and I didn't even use white oak. I ended up not even using it, but something that I found rather than using uh, ammonia to fume it was using steel wool and vinegar, which reacts with the tannins within white oak to give it that really nice, dark sort of uh, arts and crafts stained look. So that's one that I've heard of that I've never tried that I've always wanted to try that I thought was really interesting rather than using ammonia to fume the white oak, use a, steel wool what vinegar stain of sorts and you have to let that soak for overnight or 24 hours or something like that um to get the reaction from the steel wool and the vinegar but i just thought that was very interesting and maybe something you might want to try if you ever decide to go down have, the have you ever have you ever tried the ammonia i have not no i haven't tried either but uh when i was researching it uh this was something that i think i found from a fine woodworking article that uh, could be an alternative to using 
fuming instead. Yeah. Yeah. How about, well, all right, Sean, you've wow. had time to think about it now. I'm Come pretty, uh, I'm pretty boring when it comes to that. You know, I, <laughs> I don't do anything crazy. I mean, I may use, and this is a good, a good tip. You may want to write this down. I use water to, to thin latex paint. That's about as crazy <laughs> as I get. Heretic. Yeah. I don't do anything. You know, I've, I've done the vinegar, steel wool stuff. You know, I, I was actually going to, going to say that, but, um, how'd that work? I didn't, I don't think I left it, the, the combination together in the bottle for long enough. And it wasn't, you know, the effect wasn't as drastic as I'd like, but mm-hmm. eh, I mean, I wouldn't use it now on anything. Um, but Have you, you know, tried I, the ammonia? No, no, I'm pretty, I'm, I tell you, I'm, I'm pretty boring. I, I stick to stains and dyes and, you know, oil-based finishes or, or polycrylic and, and I get a little crazy every now and then and thin it out with a little bit of uh, mineral spirits. I don't even go naphtha. Mm-hmm. See, it's how boring I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have tried the ammonia thing before. I did yeah. it once. It was probably about 20 years ago. Oh, well, that's a pretty old trick. How, and, how, uh, how well ca- did it turn out? It came out really well. Okay. It came out really well. So you did like the trash bag tenting and... Yeah, like, I just made a little frame and then I mm-hmm. covered with the trash bag. It wasn't a very big piece. And I put a, 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 I went and got some blueprint ammonia, which is pretty strong stuff. And mm-hmm. I put a little bit of it in there and I left it sitting there for only like a couple hours was all it took. Really? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, didn't want, I didn't want to get it real dark. And it, it came out fine. Nice. So, How do you... I would imagine if, well, I guess it's just the gases. If the gases are filling up the container that the wood is in, then it's even distribution then? Or is there a way to sort of ensure that you get nice, even distribution? Uh, I didn't, I, I, I just had a small, like a shaker style table in there. It was made out of white, white oak. Right. And there was nothing really touching anything else. But from what I understand, even if something is touching something else, so let's say you stack it up and and pile it up in the center of this thing, mm-hmm. and pieces hit each other, the the gases go around all that. Okay. From what I understand, I haven't done it, so I don't know. But that's what I understand is that the gases will just go right around that, and it's not it's not an issue. Right. Okay. So. Okay. All right. Well, I'm done. I got nothing else. Do you have guys have anything to say about combustible materials stored in a metal cabinet? I mean, I think ideally that would be nice to have a metal cabinet, but to be honest, I don't either. And what about I you, Sean? Yeah, I, I agree with what you all, I mean, ideally, but again, I have mine in, in my wooden uh, <laughs> wall cabinet. So <laughs> there you go. Just in case OSHA ever stops by. Don't don't point him to that cat. I just won't answer the door. They'll there think, oh, go. he's not home. I'll come back later. Yep. Yep. Good got call. them. So All right. Who's got, the, who's got the next question? Me. It is Sean. Yep. This is from Dan. Hi, guys. Another quick question. I'm making a small table, and the base will be ash, ebonized with India ink. What would be a good choice for a top coat over the India ink? I was thinking of using a water-based poly, but it seems to reactivate the ink. Maybe shellac would be fine? Thanks. I've got some experience working with this India ink, um, Mm -hmm. on several pieces. And the last time that I used it, I built two big tabletops out of ash. Um, and, uh, I I did the India ink over top of it. 
And like you, I, I found that uh, you know, if you wipe on a finish, you're going to, you're going to pull some of that back off of the surface. Um, so what I like to do for that what, what is. What causes that if the India ink is dry, is India ink water-based or waterborne? I believe that the, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's waterborne. I believe the kind that I had is, but I didn't use water-based. I was using a wipe on uh, poly and was getting it to pull up and I let it, you know, let it dry, uh, over 24 hours. It could have been the fact that I didn't let it dry long enough because I did, I put it on pretty heavy. So, you know, if you rub on the surface, it it was pulling it up. So what I, what I ended up doing was, um, spraying a shellac over top Mm. of it with the spray can and letting that build up about a coat or two of that, and then scuffed it back very lightly and then I was able to put on the uh, the top coat of choice, and that ended up locking it in and preventing it from pulling it. Because it is possible if you don't let that dry, that you can rub right through a spot of that India ink, and you know go back down to the bare surface. I mean, not completely, but you you will screw up the color of that if you don't be careful. What so, makes India ink India ink? Why is uh, why is the, what what does the India ink actually? Uh, I don't know. You know? I have no, no. idea. I have no if you, idea. If you go to the website and submit a question, I'll have an answer for you next show. <laughs> but no, that is, uh, that, that's been my experience with it is, uh, is it does pull that back up. I, I don't know. I've used, I used an oil base and it pulled it back up and, you know, Dan used water base and it pulled it back up. So it, it's like either you need to give it enough time to fully dry and, uh, you know, even then, if you were to, to take a pen and, and, you know, draw a big block on a piece of paper, it, you're still going to be able to pull some of that back up. But if you let it dry as long as you can and, 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 you know, spray some shellac over it with those spray cans, those spray cans are awesome for uh, a, yeah. a quick, a quick job like that. If you don't have any HVLP or anything like that, they're, mm-hmm. they're not super crazy expensive. They're spray can. You get one of those little handles that you can purchase to attach to those bottles and they work great. Yeah, and gives you more control. And then, have you, have you ever used the 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 rattle can lacquer? Yep. Yes, that's pretty good too. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, give that a try. You know, seal it in with the shellac first. You know, even if you're rubbing uh, the shellac or patting the shellac on it, I still think you're going to run into this issue of it lifting up. Uh, there's just something about it that's pretty uh pretty picky, and mm-hmm. uh, I recommend spraying it, letting it dry, scuff it back, and then put your top coat on over that. Um, have, e- have either of you all worked? I guess, Guy, you've not worked with nope. India Inc. Have yeah. you dealt with that at all? I, I have not, but it sounds like shellac would be the solution to that just to seal everything in prior to putting on the water-based finish over top of it as a second yeah. layer of protection. Yeah, I, I probably I, agree with like that. Hearing, hearing what you said there, Sean, about, you know, you've, you've, you've used it and it pulls up with water-based and oil-based finishes. Mm-hmm. So it's probably just something that that's like the, the nature of the beast. Yeah. That's what I've experienced in dealing with it. You know, it's, it, it's hard to wipe on a finish with that on there. Even if you let it set for a couple of days, I still found that the rag ended up turning black. Mm. How much of it is actually pulling up quite a bit or is mm. that stuff? penetrate pretty well i mean it 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 penetrates pretty well i mean 
if you were to if you were to lightly wipe on a finish like you typically would, and if your rag is black, you're not going to notice any streaks in the India ink. But you know, it, it's just something that I hate seeing on the rag. So I, I mm. you know, I stopped in the shellac and all that stuff because I've dealt with that stuff before, and it, it's just I've never been able to wipe on a finish straight from the India ink to the top coat without it pulling some up. But you ri- you run the risk of it you know, becoming lighter in certain areas and sure. and, and streaking. Yeah. Mm. How long do you normally let something like that sit before you go with a shellac or an intermediary coating? Um, I, I, I would normally wait about 24 hours at least. Mm. And then, you know, just fill it with your hand. If it, obviously if it's still wet, I would give it, I'd give it more time because you obviously don't want to make a, a shellac and ink mess. Yeah. Um, you want to dry to the touch unless you, you know, that obviously you can't rub it cause you'll pull it off. But I find that the shellac does a pretty good job of locking it in. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it, it does a really good job of, of turning the, the wood, the, the right color. Um, and I found that I tested a couple of different black dyes and I just find that the true black is just hard to get with some of those dyes unless you, you know, Transtent does a pretty good job, but I had, what was it, Mohawk? or I think that's... Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I just found that it has like a, a bluish tint to it. Mm. And that's why, you know, India ink is cheap, it's easy to get, it, and it worked great for mm. what I needed. Oh, that's good to know. I remember watching those videos you did on it. it yeah, really neat. A while back. Yeah, when I actually made videos back in the day. I remember those days. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to pass it off to Hui for your first question. All right. So my first question is from Mike Labass, Labac, and this is from, he's from Buffalo, New York. And he says, hello, all. I love the podcast and its focus on woodworking. Thank you for all the great content. I have a question about exterior projects. I rarely hear mention of woods like Kumaru and Ipe. I believe I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm not exactly sure. I always call it just Ipe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that's right either. <laughs> For exterior use in articles, podcasts, or see it used by woodworkers I follow on social media. Is there a reason? Weight and hardness I'm, sh- hardness, I'm sure, factor into the decision as they can be difficult to work. But are they still worth a mention? I've made a bathtub tray out of eBay for my wife, and she loves it. I love it because it won't explode if it's dropped in the water. I'm also planning on making pool loungers out of Kumaru decking this summer, just waiting on the lumber shipment from my supplier. They will have wheels for easier movement, as they will certainly be heavy and cushions for comfort. I love the look of the wood and believe they will last being outside in the environment. Am I missing anything, or do most woodworkers just shy away from insanely hard species? Thanks for your input. Well, I do actually... Shy away from insanely hard species um, like hickory in particular. I've just heard really terrible things about hickory. Um, and so that's just something I don't deal with. However, I have cut teak and I was actually kind of surprised by how well I was able to machine teak. Uh, I was working on a project for my father in law. He was making an overhead roof rack, an antique roof rack for his uh, for his Ford truck. And it machined pretty well, and it's a pretty hard species. 
I think maybe one of the reasons why, and I had to look up what uh, Kumaru is, but that's a Brazilian teak. And I think maybe one of the reasons why a lot of woodworkers are shying away from it is that, for one, it, it seems to be somewhat of an exotic wood and really specialized in outdoor furniture, outdoor applications. Uh, you know, a lot of these teaks or these teak type uh, woods have a lot of oils in them, particularly why they're used for outdoor furniture. And for me, I don't do a lot of outdoor furniture. So in fact, actually, I've never done an outdoor piece. So I've never ha found the need to uh, explore the route of uh, some of these teaks, some of these more oily woods. Uh, that being said, I was looking at the price of this Kumaru. It's about, I could find it for about $5 a board foot for five quarter. Definitely not cheap, but definitely not out of the question in terms of making maybe fine furniture. Uh, but it also looks like uh, this is this Kumaru and, and Teak in general is just used a lot in decking type lumber. So it sounds interesting. I think, it, think it's more so um, a lack of awareness because I had no idea what Kumaru was. Uh, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, open it up to you guys, Guy and Sean. Uh, have you guys made outdoor furniture? Have you heard of you know, Kumaru, I'm, I've heard of Ipe, but I've not known much about it. And, you know, do you guys tend to shy away from some of these species or what would you use for things that were going to be exposed to water? It is pronounced Ipe, by the way. It is. Okay, good. Yeah. So shame on you, Sean. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I've known you, Sean, you've used some pretty interesting exotic woods. Um, but, uh, have you heard of some of these others? Like, uh, no, and I, I don't even have access to that kind of stuff locally. I would have to have it, you know, delivered. And so, I mean, back to his main question of do most woodworkers shy, just shy away from insanely hard species? You know, I do not. If I'm building something, I know pretty much what I have access to around me, you know, Babinga, Jatoba, um, oak, white oak, maple. I do not care how hard it is. If I know that it's going to look good and with, you know, if I'm going with the, uh, you know, a complimentary species or something like that, or like Babinga for this cabinet or this, uh, wall or floor standing cabinet that I built, I don't care how hard it is. If it's, you know, if, if it in my mind will look good in that species and I'm in the mood for that, that's what I go with. Um, now I say that until I start using it and I need to do joinery or something on it. And then I'm like, crap, this is too hard. I, I, I uh, tried to cut some mortises in Jatoba. Uh, I think that's Brazilian cherry. And God, it, it, I mean, I had to chisel it out by hand because I used a drill bit and I had to square it off with, you know, by hand. And I tell you, I mean, I, I, I bailed on the project. It was a little footstool. I mean, I bailed on it because I was like, there's no, I will never get this done. I mean, it is like chiseling rock. And that was the one and only time I regretted starting with such a hard species like that. And I was like, yeah, luckily I only used a little bit of wood, so I didn't waste much, right. but man, I how's did regret it, it. How is it machining it? Like table saw, band saw? The very slow. Um, yeah. Obviously you're going to have to take off very little in the, uh, in the planer, uh, running it through the joiner. You just, it's the machine won't let you push it fast. Um, right. because these were wide pieces that were about, you know, 10 or 11 inches wide. So I was using the, almost the full capacity of my joiner. Um, 
but it is, it's very, it, it just slows you down. You know, it, it really does. And I thought I was going to have, you know, similar feelings when working with Babinga, but I was just so excited to work with Babinga that it didn't bother me, you know, it didn't bother me at all. And cause I know how beautiful that stuff is with an oil finish on it, but the Jatoba actually made me take a step back and, and bail on using it because it was so freaking hard and wow. Yeah. It, it's, it's like chiseling and, and using a rock. Hmm. Now, Guy, have you made outdoor furniture? Do you tend to shy away from the harder species? I know you don't particularly like hickory. <laughs> You've made that obviously known in, through the podcast in the past. Um, but do you, in your personal shop, in your hobby shop, stay away from the harder species? I think he's either muted or he fell asleep. <laughs> Guy, you there? Guy. Where he got disconnected? No, but it sounds like he can't hear you, guy. Yeah, I fell asleep. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. So, guy, um, I know in the past you've shied away from using uh, really hard species like hickory in your um, in your day job. But how is it, you know, in your hobby shop? Uh, one, have you used uh, species of wood that are particularly used in outdoor furniture and do you tend to stay away from harder species i don't think i've ever made anything to go outside i made some planters once a very very long time ago and i cut that up out of womanized wood um i don't know how much i can add to this conversation you know that's that's pretty much it i i i guess if i tried to do some outdoor stuff i would probably try teak because i know i can get it yeah, it is available uh, pretty easily here in the U.S. Uh, I'm not sure the price, but that's the way I'd probably go. Yeah. And yeah. as far as a finish goes, I'm not quite sure. That's another thing I would have to check. Again, I haven't given it much thought because I've never needed to do it. Right, right. But, you know, Mike, if you've got access to it, I would I would go for it. And, you know, the price if the price seems right for you. There's nothing wrong with trying it out just because, you know, other woodworkers don't necessarily use it. I would not uh, I would not shy away from it if it were a particularly hard species. I think I think ultimately you can manage it. Um, but uh, but just take it slow, like like Sean was saying. All right. So with that, uh, we're going to go right back to Guy. You've got your second question up, man. All right. This is from Glenn. This is quick and to the point. Question, I prefer 3 inch solid wood edge banding over the veneer. Have to ask your opinion. Harder to install, but better, I think, Glenn. Glenn, I would agree with everything you just said there. I do both. It really depends on the project I'm doing. If I'm doing something like a, like a kitchen cabinet or just shop cabinets, I, I actually use a lot of regular edge banding. Uh, it's a lot tougher than people give a credit for if it's applied properly. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm making something that would be quote unquote fine furniture and I'm doing some type of veneering on it and I need to put a, an edge on it, I use solid wood. Right. Um, and I don't even go three sixteenths. I've gone, you know, a sixteenth of an inch thick. 
and put solid wood edge banding on it just because I wanted the uh, color and grain match with the piece mm. I'm making. But I've, I've done a lot of it with eighth inch stuff too. So, right. but it is, it is tougher to install. I mean, that's why Rockler sells those bandy clamps for stuff like that. And, yeah. Um, there's lots of different clamping options, but mostly I just use blue tape. Sean, I know you've done, you know, edge banding with solid wood before, haven't you? Um, I thought you had no video once where you did really solid wood edge banding. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't think so. Okay. Okay. I stand corrected. So have you used, you know, the iron on stuff? Yep, I've used the iron-on, and I made my own with my bow front cabinet here recently. Mm. Yeah. So that was solid wood. No, I used I cut veneer. But you cut your own. That that's what I would consider. It's not solid wood. It's not solid wood edge. No. No. No, I, I traced it and cut out pieces of veneer, the same type of veneer that's on the oh, door. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I've I've done both, guy. I mean, when it comes to cabinetry, uh, like I don't know, uh, pantry cabinet or linen cabinet, I'm using edge banding, the iron-on type stuff. Uh, but when it came to some of the pieces that, like you said, fine furniture, I'm using solid wood edge banding, and I'm using either blue painter's tape. And I actually have some of those bandy clamps; they're pretty nice, actually, um, right. from Rockler. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to plug Broadway. I'm just saying it I have some. Like yeah, I'm just saying I like them. They're they're actually pretty <laughs> nice. Um, uh, anyway, golly, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've done the solid wood edge banding, and I I I do like the solid wood edge banding. It's it's a nice touch. It is more work, but um, but you yeah. know when you want uh when you want it to look like Sapile, uh, I don't know. There aren't a lot of places where you can get uh veneer edge banding made of sapile maybe you can can you i don't know i've never yeah i'm sure you can i'm sure you can the thing is with edge banding it's a lot easier to trim back when you've got yeah you know like three sixteenths like that glenn's talking about i mean you usually have to trim that back with a with a router and a and and with a a bearing guided bit and that can get that can get kind of dicey Right on an edge uh, like that, because yep. you really don't have any reference surface other than let's say a three quarter inch edge on it. So at work, I said we do a lot of cat. I do a lot of cabinets, and if if a cabinet has doors on it, and let's say it's a cabinet, it's got shelves on the inside, and it's got mm-hmm. doors on it, then we put edge banding on. Yeah, yeah. If it's a cabinet without doors, let's say like a bookcase. And it's got adjustable shelves. We put like inch and a half wide nosing on the right, front of it. Right, right. Uh, you know what? You just triggered a memory in my head. I did do that on a bookcase that I made. There you go. Look at that. And to speak on that Bowfront cabinet, if I were if I were to do it all over again, I 100% would have done solid wood edge banding all the way around it because fitting that into the, the opening was a massive pain in the butt massive mm. because I, I was trying for too tight of tolerances. And if you put thin, thin veneer around the edges, you're not hand planing that because you're going to mm. go right through it. Right. Yeah. Right. And no matter how hard you, I try anyway, you know, to put the, 
to measure the door and to do this and to do that. It was, it, it took me, it took me some work to get that, that bow front door to fit that opening, uh, just right. And it took removing some of the edge banding and hand planning it and redoing it. And it was a pain in the butt, but I had to do it. Right. Uh, I've had pretty good luck with trimming down solid stock with a hand plane on like a veneered shelf. Um, mainly because that's, I've done so much of it with boxes and also with inlay. Um, I use that little Lee Nelson. The one Oh two. Yeah. As if that's a number. Okay. Yeah. The um, brass one. Yeah. Yeah. The little brass one. Um, or, or is it bronze? I'm sorry. It's bronze. You're right. Um, anyways, I've had good luck with that, but yeah, it, and it, it, I made a lot of mistakes with it too before I got good with it. But uh, that is one thing you can do. But like I said, the, the biggest thing, especially like if you're doing like just a three quarter inch shelf and you put solid wood edge banding is, is you know, how do you trim that down to the, to the veneer? And I said with a router and a, a pattern, but it, it's, it can be difficult to do. Mm-hmm. It's really easy because it, it gets tippy and it, it puts a, a pretty nasty mark in it. it. It'll ruin a piece pretty quick. Yeah, if you tilt the wrong direction, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. So, I, I, I've used a tall auxiliary fence with a little cutout in the center for the yeah. bearing bit. That tends to work out pretty well. But even at that, it's it's not perfect. Like it's not right up to the, I don't know. I, I usually have to do a little bit of cleanup afterwards. So what we do at work... I know I talk about work all the time, but what we do at work for this, let's say I'm doing a, a nosing on a shelf where it's you yeah. know, like a three quarter by inch and a half wide. And we put it on there. Actually, what we do is I, we take a, a router with a eighth inch roundover bit. Mm-hmm. We don't use the full eighth inch, but it's kind of close to that. And we'll go all around the edge of the the plywood panel with the roundover bit. Huh. Okay. Then we take the then we take the nosing and we put an eighth inch roundover on that on the edge that goes up to the other eighth inch. So it's kind of when you put it on there, it's kind of like a V. Yeah, it gives a little that little, gets, that gets formed there, yeah. and it just has to be close. It doesn't have to be exact anymore. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So you're making a little shallow, very, yeah. very shallow notch in there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually, you can buy, there's a, uh, if you've ever seen them, there's um, flush trim bits that have like a little V barb coming out of it. And that, that actually creates that same effect. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I use on the side of cabinets for face frames. Yeah. But anyways, there's a lot of different things you can do, Glenn. It's kind of, it wasn't a very deep question, but I think it was a good question. For sure. So, sure. Uh, Sean, you have the next question, I think, don't you? Yep. All right. I'm just Mark. trying to take as much control from we as I can. <laughs> you go right ahead, buddy. Okay. <laughs> All right. This is from Adam. 
and it, this is this is pretty cool. This question is for Sean mostly. So I was like, okay, first question directed towards me. I'll take that. Um, I'm getting ready to make a blanket chest with frame and panel front, sides and back out of cherry and walnut, but the recipient wants the wood from a single source. So for the first time, I'll be making the internal panels out of resawn cherry rather than plywood. I remember that you said that you had a problem with trapped hardwood panels in a set of end tables that you made for your parents a while back. I can't quite find the episode, but I was wondering, I was wondering how you would go about doing hardwood panels for a framing panel cabinet. Now, what would you do differently to keep the wood moving under control? Any tips for making thinner half inch panels in general? Thank you all. I love supporting such a great conversation, Adam. You know, it's unfortunate that my first and only question directed at me is a, about a screw up that I made, <laughs> but Hey, that's why I say I'm on the, on this show so that we can help people. Um, well, the main rule with using solid wood, anything is you cannot trap it because wood moves. So when you're making these, you know, these panels inside of a frame, just don't, you, you can't glue it if it's solid wood. Now there are instances, and I think Guy, you, I believe you do this as well. I will put a dab of glue in the very center of the uh, of the panel, just a little bit, to kind of keep it from shifting left and right. But it still allows the panel to expand in and out. But if you got a real tight fitting panel to begin with, and it's you know, that's not not entirely necessary. But the main rule is, do not try to restrict movement of a panel. My problem was, is I had, I glued the entire panel all the way around in the groove. I mean, I was, I was buying that tight bond by the truckload and I was throwing it at everything when I first started woodworking and you can't do that. (laughs) I mean, I glued again, all four edges of this panel, solid wood, beautiful cherry panel. And each end table has three panels and all three of them have a crack right down the middle Mm. and a gap where it was saying, Hey, I'm trying to, trying to move here. You're not letting me. So I'm going to just crack right in the middle. And, um, it's a bummer because I'm, you know, I don't think that you're going to be able to fix that. These end tables are, I don't know, seven years old. They've, you know, they've got a nice, uh, amber color to them. So it would be a lot of work to fix that. And even then it wouldn't be perfect. So the key is to not restrict movement of, of solid wood. So if you're making these panels, I typically make my panels, you know, a, a little bit narrower than the full dimension of the, the inside of the frame with plus the, the depth of the grooves. Um, I'll, I'll give it a little bit of room in there to just so that if it does expand, it's going to, you know, it's going to be okay. But if it, you know, contracts a little bit, it's not going to pop out of the, of the panel, uh, yeah. or the frame rather. Yeah. But the key is on that is if you're using solid wood and these panels, you cannot glue them in. Right. Right. Just the center, if if you do glue them, glue them in. Yeah, and just a little bit, just a little right. bit. Right. Um, now, any tips for making thinner half inch panels in general? Um, you know, w- when I'm making these type of panels, I'm assuming that you're talking about resawing. But um, you know, if I'm doing half inch panels as the final dimension, I will start with five quarter. Um, yes. You know, plain or an edge joint one fa- or joint one face one edge resaw it dr- down in the middle and let it acclimate and let it you know sit for a day or so come back and then get it close to the half inch and then when you're ready to to use them mill it down to the half inch get it consistent sand it 
all the way up to whatever, pre-finish them, and then glue up your framing panel. Um, but the key is, you know, those panels when you're resawing have a, you know, a, a good chance of moving. So yeah, take it. Have you, have you been able to get half inch material out of five quarter resawing? Yeah. Really? Wow. I can't, I can only get three A's. Yeah. If I want a half inch material, I, I usually buy a six quarter if I know I'm going to resaw. Well, if I have, I mean, if it, I guess it all depends on the board that I'm using. If I've got, mm-hmm. you know, I've got a, a board that's not going crazy on me. I mean, I've been able to get half inch final dimension. Hmm. I guess it's just me. Could be. <laughs> I, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not good enough. <laughs> no, nope. you weren't awake at the wheel. Uh, yeah. Um, but you guys have any tips for Adam on any of this question? No, I think you pretty much covered it. You know, uh, use a. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll, I've used a lot of quarter inch panels and three eighths inch panels. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be half inch. Um, and it really depends on what type, what time of year you're making. If you're doing it in the summer, yeah, the panel's going to shrink. If you're doing it in the winter, the panel's going to expand. Right. Later on, so that's something to remember: is you know what time of year you're making it. Always pre-finish the panel before you put it in there. Yeah. Because if it shrinks, you know, and you've got finish on it, it's going to leave a white line around it or a unfinished line around the panel, which is very common. So uh, make sure you finish around the edges before you put it in that groove. Other than that, I think you covered it very well, Sean. Okay. Well, and uh, I guess I'm going to pass it off to Hui. All right. So this question is from Dave Pallada from Ontario, New York. I was recently setting up to rip 60 facets to create a hexagonal column that is one and a half inches across the flats. I have a right tilting. That's a lot of facets, by the way. I have a right tilting arbor on my table saw. With my rip fence on the right side of the blade, the blade tilts towards the fence. This would mean the top facets would be cut with the geometry and the workpiece would be pinched against the fence. I could move the fence to the other side, which would allow me to cut the bottom facet and the workpiece would not be pinched against the fence. I have never ripped on the left side of of my blade. I ultimately decided to do this on the bandsaw and it worked out fine. This brought up the question as to which is the preferred tilt direction for the table saw. Do we need one of each or is one direction more useful than the other? I would like to know your thoughts about this. So I had, uh, I've had, i had two cabinet saws. I've had three total. But my first table saw was a contractor saw. That was a right tilting blade. My second table saw was a cabinet saw. That was a grizzly. And that was a right tilting blade. And my current table saw is a saw stop. It's a left tilting blade. I personally prefer a left tilting blade because I like the blade to tilt away from the fence. And I like to have my miter gauge or, or um, any sort of jig accessory that fits into the miter slot to be on the right side of the blade. Um, that's my personal preference. Uh, I know that 
I think left side tilting blades used to be the standard for a while, and then it switched over to right side for some reason. And now I think more manufacturers are making left left side tilting blades. I've become use, used to using the left tilting blade. And when I did need to use the tilting uh, mechanism on my Grizzly or my uh, Delta prior to having the saw stop, I just moved the fence over to the left side because, again, I just liked having the blade uh, pointing away from the fence and um, I could kind of keep track as to where the edge of the table saw blade was. Now, Guy, you've had a couple of table saws before you've had your current Powermatic. I believe the Powermatic is left tilting. Is that correct? Correct. Now, your other table saws, were they right tilting or left tilting? Uh, I've never had a right tilt. Really? Okay. Okay. Um, Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go. You you go ahead. You're going to ask me a question. I I can't remember what I was going to ask you. you (laughs) (laughs) It's only a couple seconds ago. I know. know. Well, you you started talking. I was like, oh, no, we got to let him go. Need some of that Jinko Gokolobo, whatever the hell it is. (laughs) So I've never had anything but a left tilt. And you're absolutely right. We, you know, your, your jigs and stuff should be to the right of the blade, but I've all used my jigs to the left of the blade because I never really make anything any cuts that require the blade to be tilted yeah while using a jig so Mm, um and there's a couple jigs i do have that require that but i do make them for the left for the right of the blade um and the reason you want to do that is because you don't want to have the the workpiece caught you know and using a fence anyways a workpiece caught between the 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 fence and the blade like he was saying it caused kickback Um, right now. And and if you did have a right hand tilt saw and you needed to do something like rip, that's why the, the, the saw fences are designed to go on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. So with, with my fence, I can't do that because it's a, you know, it's an anchor fence. It only sits on one side. Right. Yeah, so I can't flip it over to the other side. Right, right. Um, But there's really no need to because the the, the fence tilts away from it. Yeah, yeah. Now, Sean, you had a Craftsman before you had this saw, the saw stop. I think you have the same one I have. Uh, How was the Craftsman? Was it uh, it right tilting or left tilting? How did you adapt to it if it was right tilting? What do you mean I I had the same saw that you have? You're talking about the Craftsman? You had a Craftsman as well? No, 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 no. Saw you stop. had a saw stop. Okay. All right. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know you had one of those. It was a left tilting as well. Oh, um, really? Huh. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I agree with what both you all said. I I just feel more comfortable with it being a left tilt just because if I were to cut, yeah. you know, a longer board, I've got more, uh, I guess, tabletop with it being to the right of the blade instead of it being to the left of the blade and it being a right tilt blade. Um, but yeah, I prefer left tilting myself, but you know, then again, I've not had a right tilting, but I can, I can't imagine why I would prefer that over a left. Yeah. But yeah. And I agree. Yeah. I don't really see the need to have a right tilting blade. Yeah. I think most saws now are just left tilt. There used to be a time when, you know, 
So you buy a saw, so you can get a left tilt or a right tilt. There's very few right tilts out there anymore, I think. I think Grizzly yeah. may be one of the few holdouts. I think, they make, I think they make one model that's a right tilting. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think it was that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I know, like on the Powermatic, they're all left tilting. You don't get yeah. you don't get a choice. It's left tilt. Saw stop. Well, you know, saw stop is saw stop. You get what you get. And it's left. <laughs> it's it's. Well, I didn't mean that a bad way. It's left no, no, tilt. Yeah, it's it's same tilt. as same as Powermatic. You get what you get. Yeah, yeah you get yeah. what you get. You get it's, you get left tilt. Um, <laughs> So there we go. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the last question. So let's talk about what we've got going on in our own shops. Guy, let's start with you. What do I have going on at my shop? Well, I'm still building my desk. I got I got a total of about four hours on it this weekend. Don't have time to do it, man. So I hate springtime because of the damn yard work. Um, yeah. At work, you got all the drawers in, though. What's that? You got all the drawers in though. I saw that. I got. I finally got all the drawer slides put in. Um, yeah, it's all downhill, I guess, from here. Yeah. I think I've have to, I've got to make the the drawer fronts, and that's going to be veneered MDF. And I got to make the top, which again is veneered MDF. Um, but then I should be done. I don't know how the hell I'm going to get it in the house. It weighs like eight thousand pounds. You're going to be able to get it through the door, right? No, I, I, I made it so it couldn't come in the house. Um, I just don't know how. I, I got, what kind of question is that? Well, you know he, I me- don't know. I you just know he measured. That. Jeez I just Louise. He thinks, he thinks I'm stupid. <laughs> Guy, is, he, come on. He's, he's old, but he's not that old. We Come on. Just just because just I'm not wanted. just because I'm not a rocket science doesn't mean I didn't think of such things. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> at work i got i got a ton of stuff going on it's just i got like four projects going on it, we have a problem at work where they give me these projects but they don't order materials Ooh, and i say well okay great you gave me a project so now we need this 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 and this and okay, so they say, well, but you got to get going on it because it's got to get done by the state. And I said, all right. So I start working with what I have, and then the stuff starts to dribble, dribble in. But yeah. I'm constant. It's like I, I work on one project for a day, and then I get pulled off to work on another project because some material came in for it. And then I work on that, and then. You know, and sometimes like like today, I worked on three different projects. Hard to get into a rhythm. Well, that even that's not really it. It's just you know, because it's a production shop, there is no rhythm to anything. Yeah. You're just building stuff. But it's just I'm in a constant state of flux because I'm always waiting for material. And right. these, especially the plywood distributor we deal with, they suck. They're just awful. It takes, you order it. Do we have it in stock? Yeah. Okay. When, when can we have it? Oh, it'll be, uh, you know, two days. A week later, you still don't have it. That's mm. like, uh, you just want to scream. But that's about it. What do you got going on, Sean? Um, so I got the, 
I built a small miter sled um, that's you know going to be nice to use. And I, I I went through the veneer stack and found some veneer that I'm going to be using for the uh, the box that I'm going to build. And um, I got some curly maple, and I believe it's wingay. Um, I'm not sure because I got it for free in a stack of veneer, and it <laughs> looks like it. I don't know if I have enough, but um, I believe I'm going to have enough for at least the outside of the box. I may not have enough for the top. So it's going to be a little, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But, you know, I'm mainly doing it to uh, just to keep skill building on the uh, using the veneer and, and all that stuff. And uh, that's cool. Yeah, I hope to have, you know, and I had to wait on some hardware to get delivered and hinges and whatnot. But I hope right. to have that started uh, actually veneering this weekend. Nice. Do you do you follow that Michael Cullen on Instagram? I don't know. Michael Cullen? Michael Cullen. C U L L E N. I don't know. Let me see. He's a, he's a it's I think it's Michael Cullen design. He's a box maker. Yes, I do. And he doesn't he he makes a lot of interesting boxes, a lot of interesting shapes and stuff. But instead of using a lot of veneer, he does a lot of different painted surfaces and he does a lot of textured surfaces, which are pretty cool, I think, too. Yeah. Just throwing that out there because I know you want to get into your you want to get your into your box making thing, which is which is you know very admirable. I think it's pretty cool. But that's just somebody to look at that has done some different stuff too. All right. Cool. Well, we what about you? What do you got going on? Man, I got all my equipment moved into my new shop. I am so happy, and I'm happy to say, my wife has given me the entire garage She's forever no i don't know <laughs> so <laughs> just for the summer no no i mean indefinitely i mean she basically said when what, what that, guy just asked <laughs> i mean I, I you got me confused I, man let's just say i hope she doesn't decide that she wants to get the, her baby back <laughs> because she's basically said well you know what you've worked so hard with this garage and i'm very happy with the house it's no big deal if I'm parking outside and the garage door is right there. I can walk right she in. She says that now until she's got the baby in her arms and it's raining and she's got to get the groceries out of the car. And it's like, oh, it was horrible today. I need to park in the garage. That's when she calls for Hui to get him out of the vehicle. Yeah, well, he's at work and she can't talk to Hui because he's in, he's in lockdown. Hmm. Let's just skiff. say I've got the whole garage for now, and and, and <laughs> if, if uh, I don't, I don't want to have to think about moving the machines, all right? <laughs> but I've got everything moved in. I've got everything plumbed up, um, in place. Uh, I'm just so happy. It was very nerve wracking to have the movers come and take it. Um, but thankfully everything was on casters, right? So it made it a lot easier to move everything around, and they had a nice big lift gate i think it was like a four foot by six foot lift gate so it was a really nice good size lift gate to be able to lift everything up everything fit on all right there was no damage uh, it was just very much a relief and i have the base assembly to the farmhouse table that i'm uh, making for rockler for their woodworkers journal uh, article i've got that all done and so i just got to make the tabletop for it and then i'm done with that project so really happy to be making some progress on that and so happy to have my shop and machines all moved. Yeah. So that's what I got. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think, 
I think that wraps up this show. Please Are remember sure? this pot. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I'm pretty sure. As long as you're sure. I'm sure. Because right. Guy, you went first, and then Sean, and then me. All right. Got I think that wraps up this show. Please remember, this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com, or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, guyswoodshop.com. Sean? Sean? You can find me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on social media. All right. Great. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for listening, audience, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. All right. So you're gonna tell are you gonna tell us what to say next week? Say bye now. <laughs> All right, everybody. One, two, three.